0: If people don't have access to health care, if people have problems maintaining their own health, treating their own hypertension, treating their own heart disease, before you start, then that population is going to definitely do worse.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of The Medical Matrix. I'm your host, Rosie Sender, and my co-host on my left is McKenna Rice, and McKenna is currently a medical student at UC Davis. Before we start this particular podcast, I wanted to provide two disclaimers. The first is that the aim of this podcast is to educate on innovations and topical issues that are shared between medicine and the technology sector, and business sectors. But we felt that since COVID-19 is the global burden of our time, a handful of episodes will be devoted to it. The second disclaimer is that what we discussed today about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 is based on evidence that we have at this point in time. We are on a very steep learning curve for this virus, so what is said today may change. So with that being said, I'd like to introduce our guest today, and it is Dr. Stuart Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at UC Davis. He is also the Chief in the Division of Infectious Disease and the Director of Hospital Epidemiology and Infection Control. Welcome, Dr. Cohen, and thank you so much for joining us today for our episode on SARS CoV 2 and COVID 19. Thank you. And how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well.
1: I think what we would like to start out with is if you can go over what your role is currently at UC Davis in and around this pandemic, so particularly obviously around SARS CoV 2 and COVID 19.
0: I've been at UC Davis, by the way, since 1981. So I was there at the beginning of the AIDS pandemic as well, and so this is a slightly different experience, and my experience has been different in relationship to this. I've been asked to limit my clinical duties right now to spend most of my time on planning for how to make our healthcare environment safe for our patients. For our healthcare workers, as well as trying to set up plans for optimally managing our patients, locating them in places where they are likely to get the best care, and to help roll out and focus testing in a way in which testing will work best. So I am what they're calling a substance or subject expert. In relationship to SARS-CoV, working with a lot of administrative types. It's interestingly different.
1: Are you enjoying that role? (laughs) Okay, we'll keep it at that. (laughs) Okay. So I think what we'll do is to start the podcast. Obviously, I want to give a little overview on SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And And then I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Cohen to elaborate further. So SARS-CoV-2 stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome and Coronavirus 2. And COVID-19 is the name of the disease itself. It's part of a larger family of coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. MERS uh, was a coronavirus that was present in the Middle East. A unique feature of the coronavirus family is that they can easily hop between mammalian species. So typically we see it in cows and and MERS was spread from camels. The original SARS-CoV-1 was from civet cats, rodents and bats. And and I think currently SARS-CoV-2 seems to be either from bats or pangolins. So it's also a positive strand RNA virus, and its way of entering the body is via a spike protein on the surface of the virus, and it binds to cell surface receptors known as ACE2 receptors. These are highly prevalent on the epithelial surfaces of the respiratory and GI tracts, as well as the vascular uh, endothelium. Dr. Cohen, can I hand it over to you now to talk a little bit more about the biology of the virus?
0: Yes. So coronaviruses circulate every year. There are a number of human coronaviruses, but they're in a different class. These are called beta coronaviruses. SARS-CoV-2 is about 80% related genetically to the first SARS or sars cov It's a little bit different than MERS, but as you've noted, they are zoonotic infections, meaning they come from animals and infect humans. And by being a single-stranded RNA virus, they also have the capability of mutating every time they multiply, and that may pose challenges for immune responses as well as for vaccine development in the long term. It does not appear that this virus mutates as rapidly as something like HIV or hepatitis C or influenza, but that is one of the downstream concerns in relationship to these viruses. As you mentioned, they use the ACE2 cell receptor as a way of getting into cells. And as many people are aware, we use drugs to treat hypertension that target the angiotensin-converting enzyme, which is what ACE stands for. And there's been questions surrounding that as to whether this is making things worse or even whether this could be potentially a treatment for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. It appears, for the most part, that the data right now are pretty equivocal and it doesn't appear that it poses an increased risk And I think it probably is not a terrific target for antiviral drugs, at least not the current ACE inhibitors that we're using.
2: So, a couple questions about the clinical aspects of COVID 19, the illness transmitted by SARS CoV 2. How is it transmitted? We talk mostly about the respiratory droplets, but are there other methods of transmission?
0: Yeah, so this is also an interesting area. So, clearly, Droplet transmission is the primary route of transmission. And just to clarify, droplets means that they are larger than 5 millimeters, so they only stay in the air for a short period of time, and they can only travel a certain distance. Typically, people talk about 3 to 5 feet, which is why our physical distancing targets about 6 feet and beyond. That appears to be the primary route. But as most people are aware, the virus can live on surfaces, some surfaces for longer than others. It potentially could be transmitted by indirect contact to one of those surfaces. The virus can't jump from a piece of cardboard onto your face and cause disease. And by touching it on your hand, That doesn't cause disease either because it doesn't penetrate through the skin. The issue is that if you touch a surface and then you go to your face, then you could carry the virus with you. Similarly, that kind of thing could occur by direct contact from people right next to each other, people hugging, people kissing, potentially transmitting directly in that way where you don't really require droplets to go five feet to transmit. The virus is identified in stool, but there's no evidence that it can be transmitted through fecal-oral route, which is how many of the forms of infectious diarrhea are transmitted. Things like norovirus is transmitted in that kind of way. We don't think that this is a real route of transmission for SARS-CoV-2. On the other hand, there's been a lot more debate about airborne transmission. And the difference between droplets and airborne is that airborne particles are smaller. They can remain in the air for longer periods of time. This is typically what we think about when we think about measles or chickenpox, or even tuberculosis. There's evidence that you can identify viral RNA in air There's evidence that you can actually see viral particles when people use these fancy mechanisms. But there's no evidence that it's transmitted in that route. And there's not really clear evidence that that is viable virus that's being aerosolized. So other than in medical procedures, where we do generate aerosols by putting a tube down somebody's throat By doing a bronchoscopy where somebody is looking down into the lung, we know we generate aerosols that way. But for the most part, aerosol transmission appears to be low risk. There are handfuls of studies in hospitals that demonstrate that, and the epidemiology primarily from China really points to the fact that droplet and contact is the primary route. I also think it would be much less effective for us to be physical distancing if this was truly aerosol spread.
2: And so once the virus is transmitted and you've touched something that has the virus on the surface and touched your face, how long is the incubation period? How long until that person becomes symptomatic?
0: Yeah. So the incubation period is generally defined as 14 days. That's why we quarantine people for 14 days. But if you look at the data, the majority of people start having symptoms at day four or five. The median, I think, is six days. And at least in data from China, 97.5% of patients have symptoms by day 11.5. So most people will present early. And the illness itself is sort of almost in two phases for most patients. So, we see a more mild disease for the first week of symptoms, and then there's the potential for it escalating and becoming much more severe later on. And so, that four to five days may just be the onset of a cough, it may be the onset of a fever, maybe the onset of not being able to smell anymore. There are a variety of different ways in which it can present, but the more serious illness where people end up being in critical care units tends to occur later on in the course of the infection.
1: I had one question regarding the incubation period. So compared to SARS-CoV-1, is the adaptation of SARS-CoV-2 a sort of little bit longer incubation period before presentation of
0: symptoms? It does appear to be a little bit longer. In addition, there was a lot of debate in 2004 when SARS was first identified as to whether asymptomatics could transmit. I think it's pretty clear with COVID-19 that SARS-CoV-2 can be transmitted before people have symptoms for at least 48 hours, and that there are going to be some people who have no symptoms whatsoever. Who could potentially transmit? So, I think the degree of asymptomatic transmission is probably accounted for the more rapid spread of SARS-CoV-2 than SARS-CoV, which I think the number of people infected per person infected is a similar number. It's about two, two and a half, maybe three people for every person infected, but with the original SARS coV it seemed to be very spotty, so one person may have been responsible for fifty people getting infected, and then there might have been twenty people who were responsible for nobody getting infected and This seems to be maybe a little bit more consistent, although we don't really have data on what we would call super spreaders, which seem to be a primary mover with um SARS.
2: Okay, thank you. So you mentioned fever, aches and pains, other early symptoms of COVID-19. Is there anything else patients should be looking out for in that early phase?
0: Yeah, so a lot of them are what one might define as nonspecific. So people get coughs, people get runny noses. As I say, one very distinct finding is the loss of smell or decreased taste the other thing that seems to be not uncommon is diarrhea but i think that a lot of it is very difficult and particularly you know this started while it was still flu season so trying to differentiate it from another respiratory virus is very difficult and at least where i live now in Sacramento. This is also allergy season, and so everyone has runny nose. People cough. It's sometimes a little bit difficult, but it's the muscle aches. It's the flu-like syndrome, if I can use that term. We sometimes call it ILI, influenza-like illness. It's that package that will allow you to differentiate things. But symptoms can be quite subtle. You know, I've said this from the beginning, when a new disease is identified, we generally see the most extremes of the illness. That's how the case definition is built. That's how people understand what causes this. So if you had people all over the place at the beginning, you might not have been able to target the virus. Right. It's the same thing. I, I mentioned AIDS at the beginning. It's the same thing. At the beginning, everyone we saw had AIDS because that was the definition. And we didn't even have a test for four years. So it's a little bit different scenario. But once we had testing, we realized there were a lot of people who had much less severe symptoms and not everybody presented with what people called full-blown AIDS. Well, right now, it's the same thing. I think now that we know what's causing it, now that we have testing, we can sort of see that there is a tail end of this bell curve, and we really don't know how much that's going to be. So the data are mostly associated with the severely ill, but there's going to be a spectrum of disease that will ultimately be defined.
1: Just to elaborate on the point of the people who get severely ill, so when we see things like multi-organ dysfunction in some of these patients, is this more disseminated viral replication or increased viral load, or is it more a systemic cytokine release, like a cytokine storm that makes them critically ill?
0: Yeah, I suspect it's a little bit of both. Clearly, the Detection of virus and nasopharyngeal swabs and general viral loads are highest at the beginning. In fact, people are most infectious right before or right at the onset of their illness. That's when the amount of virus in their nasopharynx is at the highest amount. And that sort of declines over time, and the immune response kicks in and becomes more severe. I think the question of how much disease is caused by the virus itself versus how much is caused by the immune system is not entirely clear. What I would say is, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, ACE2 inhibitors are present in endothelial cells, and so they're present all over the body. There is probably viremia in most of these patients. But a lot of the severe illness is related to the cytokine storm, as mentioned. And for those not familiar, cytokine storm means that the body is generating an immune response, but it's not generating an immune response that's really focused on the degree of that it needs. It goes over the top, and therefore that over-the-top, immune response causes a lot of damage. There's a lot of collateral damage to the immune response. There are a lot of illnesses that we have where the immune response is the primary cause of illness, but it's always a combination of the pathogen and the immune response that lead to our clinical manifestations that we see in our patients.
1: So just building on that then, You know, when we've been hearing about younger patients having strokes, and is that potentially because of an immune response? You know, there are ACE2 receptors on vascular endothelium as well, right? And is part of this an intense immune response activating the clotting cascade? What are your thoughts on this?
0: Yeah, I think that that is actually quite likely. So... What also appears to be clear is that at least the severely ill patients with COVID-19 have what's called a hypercoagulable state, so they're at much higher risk for getting clots. It appears that the strokes are typically related to blood clots, and so the endothelial damage caused by the virus and then the immune response associated with it and the coagulation cascade is probably the best hypothesis as right now. About a third of the patients with COVID-19 end up getting neurologic disease. It's a smaller number that gets strokes, maybe 5 or 6%, but there is a significant number. And, you know, there's also probably direct nerve damage. I don't think that's necessarily what causes strokes, but I think that's what causes some of the smell problems that people have. Yeah, not that they smell, but they can't smell. That was supposed to be a joke. Yeah,
1: I know, I know. <laughs> We are laughing. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, that was actually what my, uh, originally I was going to bring that question up as well, whether that anosmia or that inability to smell was secondary to a neurological damage.
0: Well, the receptors are are neurologic, so I think that it is damage to that system, right? So the olfactory nerve complex is damaged.
2: About what percentage of patients experience that lack of smell or taste?
0: I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. It seems to be the less severe patients that end up with those symptoms. But I don't have numbers off the top of my head. You guys probably do.
1: So I guess one of the big questions are what we heard a lot about, especially in the early stages of this disease, was the age differentials, the people who were more susceptible to becoming ill or critically ill, and the other risk factors. And I was hoping that we could have you elaborate a little bit further on the risk factors for becoming ill.
0: Yeah, so it seems as if older age defined as greater than 65 is a risk for more severe disease. Also, presence of cardiovascular disease. And I think You're aware of the fact that there are a significant number of patients that end up with heart problems as well, either direct heart damage called myocarditis, or through potentially clotting, getting heart attacks. But there are also maybe the endothelial inflammation that leads to heart attacks that are not associated with clots. And in addition, we see heart rhythm problems too. So if somebody has an underlying heart problem, they're obviously going to be at higher risk for severe disease since that's one of the organs it targets. Similarly with chronic lung disease, that's another organ that it's targeting. And therefore people who already are borderline in their lung function are going to not have the reserve to handle an infection that's that severe. Obesity seems to be a risk factor. I'm not exactly sure why that is. There may be knowledge out there that I'm just not aware of it. We saw this 10 years ago with influenza H1N1. We saw obese patients were at much higher risk for more severe disease. Diabetics are at higher risk, probably because their immune function is not exactly perfect. People with high blood pressure are at high risk. I'm not sure whether that relates to the ACE2 target or whether that just is because they're more likely to have heart disease or how that totally fits. People with chronic kidney disease, solid organ transplant patients seem to be at higher risk. I think that's most of the list unless there are others that you want to ask about specifically.
1: I wanted to just to touch on obesity, and I'm wondering whether is it truly an independent risk factor versus it being associated possibly with hypertension or diabetes, like those patients might have an increased risk of having another underlying medical condition, or do you think that, or or is it showing that it's an independent risk factor?
0: So. At least with influenza, it was an independent risk factor. So there was a direct correlation between BMI and outcomes. I'm unaware of the data here. I don't know whether it's been analyzed to the detail that would allow for that differentiation.
1: One of the other questions that I had early on from this was, you know, we were seeing the differences in different countries in terms of how sick people were getting and different populations, how they were affected. For example, early Chinese data was more or less older people would be affected. In Italy, you had a much higher subset of people across the board being affected, still primarily older people. And over here, we're seeing Again, still older people, but we're seeing a lot of younger people that are also getting affected. And so my question is, is that is that also partly due to any sort of genetic differences that we may have between different groups of people and different ethnicities? And also, is it some of the behavioral patterns, like in some of the countries where maybe there's a higher index or sort of higher population that smokes? Are, are they also having different outcomes?
0: Yeah, so those are great questions. So I think there's probably genetics on both sides of the road. So first, as I mentioned towards the beginning of the podcast, the virus does mutate. And people who look at the virus RNA sequences can differentiate the European virus from the Chinese virus. And how much different they are and how much that changes the virulence is not clear, but you can clearly fingerprint where things come from. Most of the virus in the United States seems to actually have come from Europe rather than from China, even on the West Coast. And I also do think that There are genetics genetic differences between populations. I'm an infectious disease doctor, but I've been told that Asians tend to have less clotting disease problems. They have lower rates of DVT. That may account for lower rates of certain illnesses in China compared to Europe and in the United States. I think countries where people smoke a lot is... Likely to account for some of the worse out- outcomes or some of the poor outcomes. And I also think access to healthcare makes a big difference. How healthy people are to start with makes a difference. You know, it's easy to find cases of young, fit people that end up dying of COVID 19, but they're the exceptions rather than the rules. And I think that. That's important to realize. But if people don't have access to health care, if people have problems maintaining their own health, treating their own hypertension, treating their own heart disease before you start, then that population is going to definitely do worse.
2: Sounds like that might be a source of the disparity in the US.
0: Yeah, I think that's at least a consideration.
2: Do we understand why children
1: don't seem to be as affected by this virus?
0: Let's say I don't understand, but I'll say it in this way. Okay. (laughs) There are a lot of illnesses and there are a lot of infections where kids do better than adults. In fact, most infections, kids do better than adults. So I will use Epstein-Barr virus infection as a good example. So EBV is the cause of mononucleosis, but kids get infected all the time. Three-quarters of the population or somewhere in that range is infected, but yet three-quarters of the people haven't said that they had mono, right? So kids are getting infected when they're young, probably from the saliva of their parents, and they have no symptoms whatsoever, and then you become a teenager or a young adult And if you haven't been infected yet, then when you're exposed, you're much more likely to get symptomatic illness. Chickenpox is bad in kids, but if somebody my age gets chickenpox, it's really bad. And so I think there is this general sense that for most illnesses, particularly most viral illnesses, kids tolerate them better than adults. I don't know whether it's immune related whether it's better immunity or worse immunity or how that all fits but it isn't uncommon for kids to do better than adults.
1: Okay, thank you. So I think the next thing that I would like to dig into a little bit deeper now is the antiviral therapies. One of the things that we look at when we're making therapeutics is in relation to viruses is how do we block them from replicating? And the virus replication cycle goes through about four different phases. You have binding of the spike protein on the surface of the virus to the ACE2 receptors. Then you have cleavage of the spike protein by host proteases. Then there's proteolysis of the viral polyprotein by viral proteases. And finally, it's the RNA replication. So There are a lot of different therapies out there right now being studied all over the world, and they're targeting different parts of this replication cycle. Dr. Cohen, if you can talk a little bit about what therapies we're currently investigating, maybe the pros and cons of each, and what we know to date.
0: Okay. Well, let me start out with Remdesivir, since that seems to be the most promising of the drugs. So remdesivir is one of the drugs that targets viral replication. It blocks the virus from making new copies of RNA, which blocks its replication. It was studied initially with uh, compassionate use, and there was a small publication in the New England Journal of Medicine of somewhere in the range of 50 patients that were treated That demonstrated some promise in clinical outcomes. I think many people are aware of the fact that there was a study published last week in a journal called The Lancet, which came from China, which also studied remdesivir. It did not demonstrate a significantly improved clinical outcome. There were several problems with that study. First, they started it towards the end of the outbreak in China, so they never were able to actually meet their enrollment numbers. And so they never got to the point where they had a statistically significant cohort. There were several other issues with the study that I won't bore people with. But the one thing they did note was if they started drug early, it did seem like there was maybe some slight benefit. And then many people are also aware of the randomized placebo-controlled trial that was run by the National Institutes of Health here in the United States that has been just reported as a press release, not with clinical data yet, that demonstrated improved time-to-recovery Going from 15 days in the placebo group down to 11 days in the treated group. And a slight benefit in mortality rate, going from what I think was 11% down to about 8%. It wasn't statistically significant, but it was a trend. And there will be more data because only about half of the number of patients enrolled got to the endpoint. Of the study by the time this analysis was put together. So, at very least, this demonstrates that antiviral drugs do work. Is this the final answer? I think not. But it is definitely a step forward, and I think we'll end up becoming the target for all the other drug trials that are being looked at. I think. One of the things I would bring up, and then I'll get to the other drugs, is going back to what we talked about at the beginning, that a lot of the viral replication occurs very early on in infection. And then later it's a more of a cytokine response. And so even that fits with the data reported in the Lancet paper, that earlier seems to be better than later. So once the immune response is triggered and everything is ongoing control of viral infection is unlikely to control everything right so you probably need something to target the immune responses as well i'll talk about that after i touch on two other antiviral drugs one is hydroxychloroquine that everyone is well aware of hydroxychloroquine works by changing the acid-base balance and what's called the endosome that the virus gets into when it enters the cell. The data with hydroxychloroquine have been sort of mixed and very little has been actually peer-reviewed published. There are a lot of things that go on this pre-publication website that people can see, and there also are some small bits of data that trickle out from one place or another. It appears that the benefit is not terrific, but larger studies will be necessary. But it does have toxicity. And I think when you go back to thinking that heart disease is a common risk factor, that old age is a common risk factor, that the heart is often involved in the infection, then giving a drug that can actually increase the risk of heart rhythm problems is really an issue. And so I think that this drug is less promising to me, but I think as with everything, until we have randomized trials, we can't say much about anything, right? So there's nothing we can recommend right now that would be absolutely, everyone should receive as treatment. I think many people are aware of this drug that we used to use for HIV infection called calitra, is a combination of lopinavir and ritonavir, which are protease inhibitors. That was studied in China and also did not appear in a randomized study to provide significant benefit. There are some other drugs that are being looked at that have both immune effects and antiviral effects that we will see how they go. One is called baricitinib, another one is called selenexor that appear to target immune response but also have some antiviral effect. I'm sure there are other antiviral drugs being developed. There are unique strategies being used to develop antiviral drugs that target, as you mentioned, different points in the replication cycle and different methods of targeting those different points in the replication cycle. And then there is the immune response. And one of the cytokines, one of the hormones that the body makes to help fight off this infection is called interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 seems to be very high in some people and may be the center of the cytokine storm. And so there have been drugs targeting interleukin-6 most of these drugs are already approved for treatment of other illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis, and may also provide some benefit, one being called tocilizumab, another one called cerulamab. There are a variety of these as well. I tend to agree with what's been published in the Infectious Diseases Society of America's guidelines and the NIH guidelines, which are basically that these drugs should be studied, patients should be treated in the context of clinical trials when at all possible. Because ultimately, what we'd like to know is what really works, particularly if we're going to have another surge of patients coming in the fall. We'd hate to have spent a lot of time spinning our wheels here and not have anything to show for it.
2: Absolutely. So looking forward, you mentioned uh, resurgence in the fall. Where are we at with vaccines? And is this going to be a vaccine that needs to be readministered every year because of mutations, or where are we at with that?
0: So there are a lot of a lot of companies developing vaccines. Vaccine development, as everyone knows, is tricky. We still don't have an HIV vaccine. So I think the one year to eighteen month Target is probably a fair one in the context of other respiratory viral infections. But unlike something like influenza, where we developed a vaccine to the pandemic strain H1N1 in a short time period, we don't already have a system down for coronavirus vaccines. Right? That was the flu thing. They just plugged the different flu virus into the same model that they've been using to develop flu vaccines over the years. And you can debate whether that's the best way to make them, but at very least you get a vaccine relatively quickly. Here, you have to start from scratch. There are a variety of different ways. People are looking at DNA viruses. They're looking, or DNA as a target. They're looking at linking it with other viruses. They're looking at pieces of the spike protein. There are a variety of different ways in which vaccines are being developed. But, you know, people want safe vaccines. We have a whole population of people that don't even want to give their kids vaccines that we know work. And so we want uh, safe vaccines as well as effective vaccines. And in order to do that, it's going to take time to both develop the vaccine and test the vaccine and demonstrate safety. Regarding whether this is going to be an annual vaccine or not, I really don't know. You know, with SARS-CoV, it appeared that antibodies were maintained for about three years after people were infected. For the human coronaviruses that we get each year, it probably doesn't last much more than six months. I don't know how mutable the virus is going to be over time. Right now, There aren't a lot of Darwinian forces that are pushing the virus to mutate, right? But once there become drugs and once there become vaccines, that may make it mutate more. I I really don't know. So it might be an annual vaccine. It may be every three years or five years like the pneumonia vaccines are. It's not really clear to me.
1: So... With uh, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS, they were harbingers of things to come. So my question was, was a coronavirus family vaccine initiated? And if so, was funding an issue? Because we certainly don't have, we're not very far along of where I think we could have been if a lot of work had gone into a vaccine earlier.
0: So this is going to be pure speculation on my part, so just take it at that. That's my disclaimer. First off, with SARS, even though it was a pandemic, it was not nearly as widespread as COVID-19 is. And it also seemed that it sort of faded away. So vaccines were in development, but there was never really The time to implement it, and I'm not even sure what was associated with it sort of burning out. With MERS, the transmissibility of MERS is not quite as high, and that's why we haven't really seen other than local spread with MERS for the most part, or in travelers who pick it up in the Middle East. And so I don't know whether there's a vaccine in the process for that, but again, the urgency didn't seem to be as great. I think we already talked about the fact that these things are closely related, but they're not the same. And so coming up with a family vaccine is probably going to be a difficult thing. As you mentioned, the spike protein is how the virus gets in. That's probably where you want to target the immune response. And because of that, if they're different enough between the different coronaviruses, then a pan-coronavirus vaccine is unlikely.
1: Okay, So, you know, one of the other big issues right now is the availability of testing and the utility of testing, as well as the adequacy of the tests that we have currently. So if we can spend a little bit of time just talking about what tests we have in terms of the PCR tests for the RNA virus versus antibody testing.
0: Yeah, so clearly at the beginning of the pandemic in the United States, we did not have adequate testing. And I will say that locally we do, but I know that there are a lot of places in the country where they still do not. The test to diagnose COVID-19 is detection of RNA of SARS-CoV-2 in nasopharyngeal swab or pharyngeal swab or lower respiratory samples. That is the acute diagnostic test of choice. They are highly sensitive, over 90%, and... Highly specific, probably over 99%. But that means that there's still some that are getting missed. And there also are potential sampling problems. There are issues that may be related to testing, like the presence of swabs and the presence of media. So even if the tests are available, if you can't collect them, or you can't transport them. It doesn't help that you have tests available in the laboratory. So there are a lot of issues that still need to be ironed out. And I don't think people like having swabs stuck way up back in their nose.
1: I've had it done, it's awful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, I understand that. And so I think we'd like to be able to test saliva. They did a study looking at that at Yale that made it look promising. There are other strategies to identify the virus, but identifying the virus is critical. The antibody tests are tricky. That is in part related to the fact that some of these tests have not been vetted to the same degree that they normally would be in order to make the tests available. So the companies making them do their own validations, and then the lab bringing them up does some validations as well. But the kind of rigor that was used to roll out the RNA tests is not exactly being used for antibody testing. But there's another component to antibody testing. Let's just assume they're pretty good. I think the one that we chose for our lab is pretty good. But let's just say the test is 95% sensitive, and it's 97 or 98% specific. So first, you will have some false negative tests, because it's not 100% sensitive. The other thing is, that 3% doesn't seem very much. But if you go into a population where there's not very much disease, there's a number that we call a positive predictive value. And the positive predictive value relates to sensitivity, specificity, and the prevalence of disease in the population. So if there's no disease in the population, then every positive test is a false positive, right? And if the numbers are small, there's still the potential that a lot of positive tests are false positive tests. So interpretation is going to be tricky. I think we need to know what the prevalence is, so we have to do the testing to figure out the prevalence. And so it's sort of a double-edged sword, and we have to sort of clarify how that all works. It also doesn't necessarily mean that you're immune, because depending on what the target for the antibody test is, it doesn't necessarily target what will lead to what we call neutralizing antibodies that may provide protection. So there are a variety of issues in rolling out serologies. So we're all excited about it, but we'd be a hell of a lot more excited about it if we actually could interpret these tests clearly. We are slowly rolling it out at UC Davis As a clinical trial to try to sort of work our way through high-risk people and people who we already knew were positive by the RNA tests, as a way of trying to figure out where we're sitting within the population that will allow us to test larger groups of people and be able to really define what the tests are. That's what's called IgG, which is the later onset antibodies that typically come up about a week after the onset of illness. Sometimes you can identify IgM early, and that could be a way of identifying acute infection. IgM tests are often fraught with difficulty, and so as I'd be a little leery about using an IgM test right now to make a diagnosis, I still think you have to identify the RNA.
1: Just for our audience, I just wanted to discuss what sensitivity and specificity means when we're talking about tests. And sensitivity of a test is the ability of the test to correctly identify those that have the disease. And a specificity of the test is the ability of the test to correctly identify those without the disease. And we mentioned there are certain tests that have very good sensitivity and specificity. Even, you know, not, I think Celex is the antibody test currently that has very good sensitivity and specificity by their own data. I believe it's uh, what 93% sensitivity and 956 specificity. And normally, you know, when we're talking about a diagnostic test, this would be considered very good if a test is that highly sensitive and highly specific. But, you know, now if we're trying to use testing, like widespread testing as a metric to help the population or help reopen society, what is an acceptable false positive and false negative rate of a test? And I don't expect an answer to this because I don't think we really have a good answer to this, but I, I think that's one of the the big concerns with any one of these tests, because as you mentioned before, that even, even if you have such a good test, you're still gonna miss a few people who are gonna go and infect many others in the population. And we're talking about millions and millions of people. So.
0: If I can also point out, so let me go back to HIV testing, because I think that's a good example. So HIV tests, they were designed to be 100% specific, Mm -hmm. right? Because they were used to screen blood. So there's nobody, they don't want any false negatives. They don't want anybody who is actually infected to have a negative test. So that is set as 100% specificity. That made the sensitivity lower so that there were a lot of false positive tests. And that's why we did for so many years two-step testing, where they had to get a second test of Western blood to confirm that their test was positive. We're now at the point where we don't need to do that anymore with the quality of testing that we have. But that's how that was designed. It was designed not to miss a single person because that meant the blood supply wouldn't be safe. Mm-hmm. So you can set these tests to whatever sensitivity and specificity you are, because you get a number on a machine and you can cut the line where you want to cut the line. And you try to put it in a place that fits best clinically. But again, if you go into a population with a test that's 95% specific, and there's only 2% of the population that's positive, that means a lot of those positive tests are false positives right because they're just not there that's why it's it's sort of this loop because i'm thinking i need to know what the prevalence is to be able to predict the positive predictive value mm-hmm. but how the hell am I, am i going to know the prevalence if i don't do serologies right and so it it becomes sort of this feedback loop And that's why big studies are going to be necessary, and tests are going to have to get better over time, and they're going to have to be tweaked one way or the next. And then we need tests that will identify neutralizing antibodies, because that'll tell you whether you're really immune or not, and whether you're safe or not. Right now, I think to open up society, personally, I think we're still going to be keeping 6 feet from each other we're still going to be walking around with masks if we want masks i don't think that's going to change based on serologies and if i was sero positive i would still stay 6 feet away from people and i would still wear a mask because i am in that risk of group of people that i listed earlier
1: okay so one of the questions that i often get asked about is the and you touched on this a little bit earlier about the effective of the immune response in developing antibodies to this virus, right? Because we've seen in some of the Asian studies that, that people were getting reinfected. And is it that they're truly getting reinfected or is it that the testing was not adequate or are we not capable of developing antibodies as robustly as we are for some other
0: diseases. So I will say that my suspicion is that those patients that have recurrent virus it's just intermittent shedding. Okay. We've seen people who've had negative tests and positive tests the next day. So they're not getting reinfected in that short time. It's just intermittent shedding. I do think we can develop an effective immune response because we know that there was a small study in China using convalescent plasma, so using plasma from people who got better, that did seem to provide some benefit. And that's something also that's being studied in the United States in both severely ill patients and less severely ill patients and actually after exposures, which I'm really I really think that's a really good place for that. I think people who get exposed and get antibodies early are much more likely to not end up getting sick, but purely hypothesis.
1: Yes. Well, do you have any closing thoughts, Dr. Cohen?
0: I would close by saying that this has been an interesting experience, to say the least, watching how this disease has spread. It's clear that we don't know a lot of things about it. I don't think that should make people nervous. I think it should make people almost feel better about it, that people can actually say, we don't really know everything, but we're trying to learn. And in such a short time period, we have made terrific advances in our knowledge, actually in management of patients, both the critical care management, which is not my expertise, as well as the anti-infective management. The diagnostic testing has improved greatly. There are a lot of positives that have occurred in a very short period of time. And so I think we should be optimistic that things will end up being managed. I am certain that there will be, that this will be a problem that will be ongoing and that we're all going to have to be aware of for at least in the near future. And this may end up rearing its head a little bit more again come influenza season when respiratory illnesses are generally increased and confusion will be generally increased in trying to differentiate one from the next. So it's an ongoing battle. I think that we are all doing the right thing and we'd like to see our society open back up again. I think my wife can't take much more time with me. <laughs> we will.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Cohen. We really appreciate your time and expertise and helping us synthesize all the information that's out there in sort of one cohesive hour. All right. Thanks, Dr. Cohen.